What is college for? It's a question that people in college ask all the time. Uh, and usually you get a kind of smart-ass answer about how, well, college is the place where you ask about what college is for and what life is for and everything else. It's about the questions, not the answers. And maybe some more sophisticated version of that is right. But I want to ask the question in a more literal sense, which is, what is the social function of college in America? Uh, it's on the mind because last week I graduated, along with a bunch of other people. I don't have a particularly strong answer that gets at what the core of college is supposed to be about. I think if I had to say anything, it's certainly more social than academic. But during commencement last week, I was sort of happy to see that no one else seems to have figured out what it's for either. And there was reason to be hopeful that this might be the time when people sort of figure out this question, because sometimes when you look back on something, once it's over, you get a clear picture of what it was and what it was about. Though I'm only about two weeks removed from college, I would say this is not the case. And it doesn't seem to be the case for my class in general. So this episode is going to be a kind of special episode. It's not going to focus on a book or a movie or try and say anything interesting about society at large, at least not directly. It's really going to be a review of commencement at Harvard for the class of 2019. And it's going to look at the speeches of all the big wigs and of the student speakers and try and see if they're saying anything at all. With most speeches, uh, especially graduation speeches, they have a severe tendency to say basically nothing, where you have sort of a thankful section, you have a global challenges section, and then you have a uh, this class will go meet and solve these global challenges section. And you can sort of frame most speeches to graduating classes in this way. Doesn't mean that's bad, doesn't mean it's saying anything nefarious, but it is boring. And luckily, the about four or five speeches we're going to talk about today don't fit into that category too strictly. I mean, you certainly have it, but we have some variation. Very quickly during commencement week, my hopes for figuring out through one of these speeches what college was for were dashed because we fell very quickly into this cliche structure. And it's not just that cliche structure. It's that sort of cliche cocktail mixed with a special tonic of our age. And that tonic is the arc of justice tonic. At least that's what I want to call it. And the Arc of Justice tonic started out as a specialty brew in the early 1960s and 
Very few people knew where to buy it, and very few people could mix it into their drink and anything that tasted good. And who knows how this Arc of Justice tonic company expanded, but man, they expanded. And now you can find this tonic in just about every cocktail you buy. That is to say, you basically cannot give a graduation speech without explaining, number one, how you have helped push the world toward a more just state, and number two, how we still have so much further to go, and number three, how you alone cannot push the world to that state. You need sort of the broad rainbow coalition. Again, we have the cliche problem. This is not necessarily a bad idea. In fact, much of it is sort of inspiring and good. But when you take this tonic and you mass produce it, and you put it in every speech, it starts to lose a little bit of its inspirational content. And that was on full display during commencement week at Harvard this year. The first speech I want to talk about falls victim to this cliche. And I think due to no fault of the speaker, the speech I'm talking about was given by a member of the class of 2019, Eunice Mabe. And Eunice's story is inspiring, but it kind of falls victim to Horatio Alger problem, which is that it's, it fits so closely with the exact kind of thing that edifies upper middle class educated people in America that you almost can't take it entirely seriously. Eunice tells a story about how as an outsider in Kenya, she had a certain view of America. And then when she came to go to school in America, she sort of had these two worlds collide. Uh, it was a very funny speech. She had a sort of great commentary on how America represents itself in TV and the soap opera version of high school versus the real version of high school and, and college, too. Again, the problem with her speech is not anything about her speech. It's that a lot of other people give similar speeches with similar messages about the inside and the outside of America, about hyper-cultural appreciation, about universal values. And they don't have as inspiring a story. They are people who want to be part of the liberal elite club, maybe for social purposes, get the pool membership or something like that, have people to invite over for dinner. The cocktail party crowd, right? This is a known thing. And so in a weird way, we have the crowd that is generally worried about cultural appropriation appropriating their own kind of way of thinking about the world. Eunice had a nice refrain at the end of her speech where she talked about how she kind of studied America as a sociologist, trying to learn the mores and the certain practices of Americans as an outsider. And that despite sort of learning weird particular things, like we watch the Super Bowl, we do March Madness brackets, sort of particular American habits... There was also a universal element. And she talks about this. She says, quote, the most important of them, she's talking about the findings, the most important of them, that people are people, and joy is joy, and pain is pain everywhere. And we cannot limit ourselves to what we know based on where we come from, end quote. So if that's the message, and I'm complaining about this speech being so cliche, you know, it's, there's kind of two things going on. One is it's a very nice message, and the other is you can see why it's cliche, because you have essentially a universalist 
call. But the problem with universalist calls is you would think they can be made universally. And I don't think they can be, at least not in this way. What feels like a genuine understanding of the universal elements of humanity, along with the cultural specifics of America and outside of America, inside, outside, foreigner, and native, is, I think, tastefully done by Eunice. But it's a topic that's so hot right now. Uh, a similar thing is going to be said by lots of other people, and it's not going to be so tastefully done. I don't even think it's going to be genuinely done in some cases. But that's the first speech, and you know, I'll rate the speeches out of 10 just sort of arbitrarily. I think this speech is a solid 7.3 out of 10. It's a good speech, genuine speech. Maybe I wasn't exactly the intended audience, but whatever, I appreciated it. The next one was Al Gore's speech. Now, Al Gore, I knew him from An Inconvenient Truth, and I thought it was a very well-produced movie. And so I expected him to kind of do a version of that as a commencement speaker. And he did about half of a version of it. That is, half of his speech was An Inconvenient Truth But in 2019, talking about climate change, how we have to change, but we can. The first half, though, was new. I guess it was somewhat predictable once you heard it. It was basically Trump bashing for 50% of the speech. And the thing that he was bashing Trump for wasn't kind of the usual media stuff, Russian collusion, whatever else. It was the fact that he thinks Trump is a kind of person who's dismissive of reason and wants to sort of act on instinct rather than rational debate. And Gore's point was that's the most dangerous thing because it leads you to an autocratic world. Gore's point, I think his main critique of Trump, if you want to use the academic phrase, wasn't really a critique, it was really bashing because there wasn't any defender in the crowd or anything. I mean, everyone was kind of like, oh yeah, you don't like this guy, we don't either, woohoo. But if we have to say what is Gore's critique of Trump at its best, It is that reason and rational debate is the foundation of Western democracy and that Trump is sort of an instinct-based guy, a nationalist instinct-based guy. And that actually undermines the basis of democracy. So Gore says in his speech, quote, The belief that free citizens can govern themselves wisely and fairly by resorting to logical debate on the basis of the best evidence available instead of on the basis of the exercise of raw power, remains a central premise of American democracy. And it is precisely that premise that is under assault in our country today, end quote. So that's definitely a theory of the case. I don't think that's what most people dislike about Trump. I don't even think that's really what Trump represents, which is like an autocratic guy who wants to get rid of rational debate. Um, He goes on and talks about, you know, this is why the attacks on the free press make a lot of sense, right? You got to undermine the sources of truth. I mean, I think if what he was saying were more true, I would agree. I just don't think that it's the case that rational debate is really under much attack today. And if it is, I really don't think Trump is the the catalyst for it. I would also say, too, uh, if Gore's premise is that you have to be logical and rational and debate things with the best available evidence. I actually don't think that his analysis of Trump is that sophisticated. I think he gets away with it because the crowd is so against the guy anyway. 
But if you want to discuss, you know, the Trump phenomenon, certainly some of it's particular to the guy and you can really hate the guy. There's also like a global backlash movement in Europe. It starts with Brexit and you have lots of stuff in Eastern Europe with uh, sort of right wing nationalist parties. And so if you want to explain Trump, probably you have to explain the rest of that, too. Lots of people have acknowledged this as sort of the burden of explaining uh, the last decade and how this political move happened. And I don't think Gore really goes there. I don't think he even really recognizes that that's the burden of the rational explanation for Trump. And that's fine. But, you know, if you're calling for rational debate, you have to sort of rise to that challenge. And he doesn't quite on this point. The next point uh, that Gore goes to is climate change. And this is Gore's bread and butter stuff. And it's good in one sense, which is it is finally separating the speaker and the class from the institution and the college. And he gets on board with what's been known as the divest movement, which wants the university to take its money out of fossil fuel companies, basically sell all fossil fuel stocks and not profit from fossil fuel profits. And Gore, it was sort of ambiguous. You know, he's going to talk about climate change. Is he going to give a shout out to these guys? What's the position going to be? And he actually goes much further than a shout out. He directly criticizes a bunch of the bigwig university guys that are sitting to his left and right up on stage. And and when Gore's talking about this, he directly attacks the policy of the university. He says, quote, why would Harvard University continue to support with its finances an industry like this that is in the process of threatening the future of humanity? End quote. Boom. And at this point, everyone in the crowd stands up. You have a bunch of students who were sort of hoping that he would go this you know, far, and he went even maybe a bit further than they were expecting, so everyone's thrilled. And then the bigwigs on stage realize everyone's standing up. It's kind of like the State of the Union, you know, where you go, who stands up, who doesn't stand up? Then the dean of the college, Karana, like halfway stands up. But then he leans sideways a little bit, so like maybe he's just standing up to stretch. But then he starts clapping, and then he stops clapping. He's still leaning sideways, just very, you know, ambiguously uh, supporting the idea. And this was an absolutely brilliant moment because it highlights the total contradiction inside all of this arc of justice tonic business. Because the university thinks of themselves as the most moral agent maybe in America. They have as much money as they need. They're doing the work of educating the future leaders of the world, hopefully. That's what they would say. And yet they still have this sort of fossil fuel business going on. Now, whether or not that's an effective measure isn't really relevant. The point is they haven't taken action on it. And they still put out the same marketing material. And Gore basically calls them out on this. And so now we see, wait a minute, this Ark of Justice tonic, they're not selling this just to the Ark of Justice people. They're selling this to everybody. And Harvard University has been buying it in bulk for decades. And it's diminished a little bit the, uh, the active ingredient, let's say. So despite the fact that Gore's speech, I think, is a little bit unsophisticated in certain ways, it did reveal an internal contradiction. And for that, it gets bonus points. That said, I would rate this speech uh, probably six and a half out of ten. I think it was the least compelling as a whole unit it was maybe the best delivered rhetorically. You know, he's a very good vice president, very good public speaker. But I thought the sort of moral direction of it was a little bit strained itself. 
That said, it did have the best moment by far. And it actually leads us exactly where I want to go in talking about what was actually the first speech of the day. And it was by this guy who, in the key moment in Gore's speech, is halfway standing up. The guy who starts clapping and then stops, who leans over almost as if he's stretching, but is kind of showing support for Harvard doing something that Harvard doesn't want to do. And this is Rakesh Karana. Karana's speech did not review well with parents. I talked to several, and you could just sort of tell when he was giving it by looking around the crowd, that people were not particularly happy with his message. And that's in spite of the fact that this guy had extra doses of the Ark of Justice tonic in his speech. The reason a lot of parents didn't seem to like it is because he questioned whether or not the graduating students deserved in any way the diploma they were about to get. It's best if I just read it. He says, quote, Four years ago, when I met you at convocation, I said these words. You all belong here. I meant them then, and I mean it now. You have made me so proud. But did you deserve to be here? Tomorrow you leave here with a Harvard diploma. Do you deserve it? I don't know. I didn't get one. I didn't get into Harvard. But I'm really asking the question, does the person sitting next to you deserve it? Does anyone? What do we have because we deserve it? And what do we have because of a combination of hard work, luck, and the privileges sociologists call structural inequities? End quote. You can see why that wouldn't be the most popular message to give at graduation when you have parents who just spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on an education for their child to say, well, you know, you're about to get this, but you might have scammed the system or you might not really deserve it. But I think Karana deserves credit for bringing this up. Not because he's got the right analysis, but because it is an important question, which is how can you have a university which used to be Wasp City and has rebranded itself as Multicultural City still have essentially the same process for his admission, which is a kind of merit-based, essay-based, interview-based, personality-based, however you want to do it. They would call it a holistic uh, application process. But at the very least, there's some kind of delineation between students who are prepared, students who are unprepared, students who would fit well, students who wouldn't fit well. And that's been basically a constant through the changes of the university from it being all male to it's integrating men and women to you know, getting rid of the quotas on Jews, whatever. There's a sort of a long history of the opening up of the school. The deserved question is a question worth raising. And so while I don't like where Karana's speech goes after the part I quoted, I think the question is worth thinking about in a genuine way for a little bit. I mean, take, for example, a lottery. If someone wins a lottery, do they deserve to win the lottery? I think it depends what you mean by deserve, obviously. I mean, certainly they bought the ticket. They entered the game. There were rules to the game. You buy a ticket, maybe you win. Probably you don't. And if they win, sure, they deserve it as much as anyone else. Certainly if they, with their winnings, buy a bunch of stuff which says, I'm the greatest, you know, the most skilled lottery winner. I can win the lottery whenever I want, whatever, you know. Well, then you would say something like, okay, look, they deserve to win the lottery. They didn't have a particular skill in winning it. And college admissions have become a crapshoot that has been approaching a lottery. It's not a lottery, but it's more lottery than it used to be. Part of that is because each applicant now applies to so many other places, it just sort of pushes down the acceptance rates overall. 
part of it is because the number of people wanting to go to college has gone up a lot lately. And a lot of the most, you know, prestigious, whatever that means, places haven't increased their class size. So you have Stanford and Yale and Harvard, these places where it's ridiculously low acceptance rates. It's something like three or 4% at a lot of them. And if you apply with the, you know, not early, it's 2% or one and a half percent, absolutely ridiculous acceptance rates. And you can say that's a kind of lottery. However, certainly hard work and other things play a role too. And to paraphrase the rest of Karana's speech, he's saying more or less, look, this whole idea of deserve is kind of a goofy way to think about things. Because while you had to do some hard work in high school to get where you are, a lot of other people worked real hard in high school too and aren't where you are. And maybe you just got lucky, or maybe you had parents who donated a library, which certainly happens. And that's why you're here. So let's not worry too much about deserve. Let's just say now that you're here, try and do good stuff. What's the good thing that you're supposed to do with this privilege, which may or may not be arbitrary? You can hear the can of Arc of Justice tonic opening as we speak. Karana quotes RFK in saying, quote, Each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lives of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope. And crossing each other from a million different centers of energy, those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. That's a heavy dose of Arc of Justice tonic. But Karana may have gone into his stores and found old, authentic, you know, reserves. Because that's an RFK quote. That's from when this was a rare thing. That's when, when you gave this speech, people would actually disagree with you. You know, now you say that, you're not going to have anyone disagree. Everyone's just like, yeah, of course, that's obviously what we should be doing. We should have no more injustice. No one's going to disagree with that. And even when you get to the more practical level, like, okay, you know, treat everyone the same. Let's not discriminate on basically, you know, race, gender, religion. You're not going to have like big objections to that anymore. Used not to be the case, but times change. Interestingly, though, the speeches have in a lot of ways not changed so much. And so that's what's interesting with Corona's speech. He's kind of pissing off a lot of parents by bringing up something a little uncomfortable, which is it's kind of arbitrary who gets into these schools sometimes. True. And that the thing you're supposed to do is, you know, fight injustice. Sure. The problem is we're running out of injustice. Not to say there's not some, right? You always have to say not to say that obviously there's still injustice. There's some injustice, but we're running out. And one of the reasons we're running out is because the way that Karana phrases it here and the way that a lot of people phrase it is always in the negative, which is, what is our ideal? Equality. And so what should we fight? Things that prevent equality. We want to even stuff out so that everyone can live, you know, have equal opportunity. Fair enough. Except if that's the only good if just starting from the same place is the only good and whatever you do after is kind of an arbitrary thing that doesn't have any moral content at all, then you can really think only in this negative sense, right? Get rid of barriers. There's no positive side to it. There's no active thing of what your life ought to look like, the things you ought to commit yourself to. Now, if you're thinking, well, it's a good thing we got rid of them because all of the things you're supposed to commit yourself to in the past, like your religion, your family, your country, that leads to, you know, nasty wars and genocides and whatever. I submit to you that that is perhaps a slanted reading of history. 
Suppose you commit yourself to just the vaguest idea in the positive sense, which is that your life should, on the one hand, fight injustice, but it should also, on the other hand, promote the nation you were born in. This, to me, seems about as universalist as you can make it. And yet, even this concept is resisted, I think, by these graduation speakers, by Karana, by the Arc of Justice tonic aficionados. And while I have a guess at why, I don't think it's that good a reason. The reason I think they're resistant to say, help build up the country, help build up the community, help, you know, promote something. Don't just be a a negative, you know, leveling force, but help build something up. The reason I think they're hesitant to pick a thing that you're supposed to build up is because once you do that, it's a lot harder to be completely universalist. Some nations will be stronger than others. Some religions will, you know, be on the rise. Others will be on the decline. Some areas will prosper economically and others won't. And so you immediately begin to depart from your equality starting point. And so we see, obviously, we have now competing goods. And that just makes the picture more complicated, maybe too complicated for a graduation speech. But that's where Karana ends up. That was 2019. I was looking through past commencement speakers and class day speakers, trying to see, you know, is this a general trend? How varied were the speeches? And you have the full range. So... You have, we had this year Al Gore. In previous years, you had more general celebrity types. You had like Natalie Portman, which that would have been nice. Uh, You have other actors, actresses, activists, politicians, authors. Like 30 years ago, I think Mother Teresa was a class day speaker. In terms of moral authority, she's pretty high up there. That said, I don't think it was probably the most exciting speech. I don't know. I maybe should read it. But in 2014... I saw a very interesting name, one that confirmed that this arc of justice tonic is being mass produced and it's being bought by too many people. And that name was Sheryl Sandberg. Now, Sheryl Sandberg gave a speech. And even if you don't know who she is, from what you've heard thus far, I bet you can guess what she said. Now, maybe that means that she was very successful. You know, she gave a speech in 2014, and now it's 2019, and we can kind of guess what she said, even though we haven't heard her speech. But more seriously, the reason we can guess what she said is because a lot of other people have said the same thing. And Sandberg is the COO of Facebook and has been for a while and was in 2014. And so she gives a speech about how she is an example of the benefits of everyone drinking the Ark of Justice tonic. She's a successful, extremely wealthy, powerful woman in the male-dominated industry of technology in Silicon Valley. Now, that's true, but that doesn't mean she is now a moral authority on justice and injustice around the world, at least not any more than anybody else. But you often have this kind of thing happen where somebody is successful in overcoming some sort of barrier, social barrier. They'll call it, you know, injustice. Sometimes it is. Maybe in her case it even is, right? We have male-dominated industry. Let's just say she is at worst an outlier and at best a freedom fighter. 
And because she's overcome that and made however many millions or billions of dollars, she then prepares to give you her designs for society. Now, I'm not opposed to hearing designs for society from people, but I don't like when they're done from a position of, get ready for the word, privilege, which is to say, rich person, powerful person, does a lot of interviews, now starts to explain to you how things are with only a minimal sense of critical reflection. Now, frankly, I was a bit disgusted reading the speech. Uh, Here's a quote that will hopefully show why the mass distribution of the Ark of Justice tonic is a bit out of control today. She begins by talking about how she was invited to speak at an all-male club in San Francisco. And she had been before, but then she's sort of walking around. She goes, hey, it's all-male. You know, is this an all-male club? Turns out it is. And whatever, maybe they hid that from her. I don't know how, you know, observant she is if you didn't figure that out beforehand. You know, do a Google search or whatever. But then Sandberg sends an email to these people saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. You got you to gotta change your ways. You got to let in women. You cannot have an elite all-men club. You need an elite all-men and women club. Okay, fine. I mean, a lot of people would object to the elite part. She's objecting to the men part. Cool. She goes on to say about the email, quote, they thanked me for my response and wrote that perhaps things will eventually change. Our expectations are too low. Eventually needs to become immediately. We need to see the truth and speak the truth. We tolerate discrimination and we pretend that opportunity is equal. You know, implied that it's not. She goes on, yes, we elected an African-American president, but racism is still pervasive. Yes, there are women who run Fortune 500 companies, 5% to be precise, but our road there is still paved with words like pushy and bossy, while our male peers are leaders and results-focused. African-American women have to prove that they're not angry. Latinas risk being branded as fiery hotheads. A group of Asian-American women and men at Facebook wore pins one day that said I may or may not be good at math. Yes, Harvard has a woman president, and in two years the United States may have a woman president. But in order to get there, Hillary Clinton is going to have to overcome two very real obstacles unknown and often misunderstood gender bias, and even worse, a degree from Yale, end quote. Ha 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 It's a classic commencement joke at a bunch of these Ivy League places. Is like, you always make fun of people who come from other Ivy League places, and it's kind of, you know, like your uncle pulling your nose. I, I don't like those jokes very much. I think they're goofy, and um, it's a very elitist kind of thing. That's not the main problem with that passage. The main problem is, of course, this is Sheryl Sandberg, the person who's in charge of operations at Facebook. She talks more in the speech about how at Facebook, nobody should think that a problem is somebody else's problem. And yet these are the guys who are selling mounds and mounds and mounds of data in exchange for mounds and mounds and mounds of cash, billions of dollars each year, 20% revenue growth, whatever, one of the best performing stocks since its IPO. Facebook, because they can sell targeted ads in a way that even Google, not exactly the king of privacy, isn't willing to do. They target it exactly to what you want. They track you all across the web. And they'll sell this data not just to American companies who want you to buy, you know, more bleach or fabric softener or toothpaste. They'll sell it to the Trump campaign. And even better, they'll sell it to the Russians. Ooh. So maybe the thing we got to be asking Sheryl Sandberg about is, 
why eventually needs to become immediately in social practice. But, you know, the integrity of our democracy and the privacy of every citizen of our country, that's a pretty tough nut to crack. Privacy, whatever. Facebook can't be totally responsible. Developers were abusing it, whatever. You know, they they had a whole list of excuses. What's the point? Is the point that the things that Sheryl Sandberg talks about in terms of the kinds of discrimination that still exists should be dismissed? No. The point is that she can say those things at the very same time as creating a massive civil rights violation at the very same company, and nobody bats an eye. No one has even really called for her resignation except for a few people on Twitter because, look, she's a woman in tech, and you can't get rid of women in tech. There aren't that many. And you go, oh, where's the discrimination now? So you have Sandberg and Zuckerberg and a bunch of other jokers at Facebook many of them Harvard geniuses, they know exactly the language of equality, of the new socially conscious left. And they can parade that language around in speeches, donate to the right political parties, at the same time as they create one of the biggest civil rights violations the country has ever seen. A violation so large that the CIA couldn't dream of imitating it 30 years before or 20 years before or even 10 years before. If you tapped everyone's phone in the whole country and transcribed it, you wouldn't get as much information as Facebook has on us about our likes, about who our friends are, about whose profile we look at, about who we message, about what we say. I mean, what Facebook has done in terms of the data that they have And the way that they sell it to people is, in my mind, criminal. I think it it, it respects in no way the basic human right of privacy that everyone has and that Americans have enshrined in the Constitution. The fact that you can have someone like Sheryl Sandberg go to a graduation speech and say the exact same thing, heavy dose of arc of justice tonic in her speech, as a lot of other people, it's a similar thing to what Eunice was saying, shows that we have reached a decadent phase of American political discourse. We have reached an ideological end to the old world order, I think, that was kind of capped off with Clinton and Bush, maybe Obama, and that now phrases are empty, phrases are hollow. And the thing that Gore was blaming Trump for, irrational, gut-level reaction, which... He might be guilty of, I wouldn't say that's his most, his biggest flaw, but whatever. He was probably guilty of it. It seems clear to me now that the arc of justice equality talk is no longer a genuine political conviction. It has become a social group that you want to be part of, and it's even become an ideology. And so for people who respond very deeply to the things that Sheryl Sandberg was saying about how we need to change modern society to include everybody. I ask you, are you willing to have Sandberg be a messenger? So Sandberg is making a familiar point, one we've heard from lots of speakers, sometimes when it's more genuine, sometimes when it's less genuine. I think it's fair to say she's on the less genuine side. And what she's essentially talking about is this question of rights. Rights should be extended to everyone. They should be extended equally. Fine. But does it work when you are, on the one hand, talking about extending rights to 
groups evening out gender disparity in technology, whatever. And on the other hand, creating a civil liberty doomsday machine and then selling access to that machine to anyone who's willing to pay. And then when you get caught selling access to that machine, start a whole bunch of other misinformation, basically, in terms of blaming other companies, dragging other people down into the mud with you, et cetera, et cetera. No, that's not a trade we should make. That's not a, that's not a person we should respect. And just because someone's the champion of gender equality in Silicon Valley, that shouldn't insulate them from doing a bad job. So while I wasn't there, I watched the video of Sheryl Sandberg's speech. And if I had to give it a score, I'd give it a 3.5 out of 10. There were one or two jokes that I chuckled at, about five that I didn't. It read sort of like a bad rom-com, and the delivery didn't really extend it much beyond that. And knowing what we now know about what the company she is halfway in charge of did and continues to do, I think there's reason to be disgusted and skeptical about whether or not this, the language that she was engaging in has any value. To kind of recapitulate what I think the main point was, it was kind of a reflection on what it is to be derivative and what it is to be original, what it means to be those things. It's worth noting, though, that this theme, this song, whatever you want to call it, that probably began in the 1960s, this, this, this march that the youth has been committed to for a long time, now lacks an authentic mouthpiece. And it's not because there aren't any. It's because you can't tell the difference. And so if this age is coming to a close, if the restlessness of America's youth can no longer be authentically uh, displayed as a kind of push towards justice, which I don't think it can be, then what are we supposed to do? Well, I think it's happened before this kind of transitional period. I think we can go back and look at a speech that was given in 1960, to the class of 1960, by Nathan Pusey. And this is at the beginning of the 60s sort of cultural, you could even call it a cultural revolution moment, though I'm talking about America, the new left, the, uh, the hippies, sexual revolution, etc. I think that's the beginning of what we are now seeing the the end of, the final decade or two of. And Nathan Pusey is reacting to this kind of moment of change between the disillusionment of the youth in the old way and the disillusionment of the youth in the new way. The old way is decrying the end of a sort of national unity based on Protestant values, Christian values, and the fact that the modern world was letting science dominate areas that spirituality used to dominate. And the new apathy, the new disillusionment, was with the social and economic conditions of people in the U.S. And that was a transition. In Pusey's speech, he talks about the lack of vitality, lack of energy that was felt by the class of 1960. 
and a kind of disillusionment with the world that they were about to enter into and a kind of uh, distrust of the professors and the ways that they were being educated in order to deal with that world. And he says that there are certain outlets that people found, but they're kind of a transitional outlet. Some are satisfied with them, many are not. He says about these new activist outlets, quote, There has been a deficiency of passion and of concern. Barricades have had little appeal. Few have been eager to participate actively in good works. Near the end of your four years here, the call to picket on behalf of unsegregated lunch counters in the South presented to some of you an opportunity to become activists and thus to escape from the sense that you were not doing what you should. But on the whole, there has been only very faint evidences now and then of direction and purpose. And, as a consequence, very little desire or effort, inside or outside of college, to change the world. In recent years, the aim of most has simply been to get on in the world as it is. End quote. To get on in the world as it is. If that's the sign of the end of whatever the age before our current age was, I think it's fair to say that that's sort of where we are now, which is, don't change society in any fundamental ways, keep the economy developing as it's developing, we're going to tweak certain things on the margin, include more people than were previously included, focus on changing a few mores, which are still discriminatory. But on the whole, we've sort of landed on the best way to do things. And if it's not broke, don't fix it, or however that saying goes. That is to say, I think the stock for the company that makes the Ark of Justice tonic is about to tank. At least I wouldn't be buying it in the next 10 years. And the reason is the people who used to buy that tonic were actual change makers. And now it's become a dinner table staple. And so while the real change makers still buy it, so does everybody else. And it's no longer identifying people who have fundamental convictions about how the world ought to be and people who want to be part of the right cocktail party. Pusey goes on to further diagnose the problems he thinks are fundamentally spiritual problems. And he doesn't offer any great solution, which is why I think his speech, if I was going to rate it, I didn't hear it live, but I've read it, I'd call it a 9 out of 10. Because, because it doesn't fall victim to the temptation to make an optimistic turn at the end of your speech. Maybe we really are screwed. Maybe we're doomed. Maybe the past was better than the present and there's nothing we can do about it. That's kind of his sentiment. And... There's some honesty in it. He says, it's sort of the turning point of his speech, quote, The falling off in conviction and in will in the Western world in our time is a very general and pervasive affair. We're all victims of it, rather than its active instigators or fomenters. What seems to be lacking, at bottom, is the kind of faith we can only speak of as religious. Faith we know we need, and for the most part wish we had. There are few people in our world who do not want to believe in God. The atheist is not necessarily a happy person. The tragedy of our time in this matter of belief is not that many in the intellectual world do not believe in God. It is, rather, that there are many who want to and can't. Now, that is not something you would expect to hear in graduation commencement speeches of today. It's an interesting message, though. A call back to religious belief. I mean... That is, maybe it was even cliche back then, right? The decline in church attendance, whatever, breaking apart of American family, sexual revolution. You wouldn't expect to hear anything like that today. But more than the exact idea that he's talking about, which is a lot of people want to believe in something and can't, 
which is in itself a great idea. There's just the pessimistic feel of it and the fact that it's a kind of a bummer. And that's nice. That's refreshing. I mean, every speech at graduation is supposed to be so celebratory. You know, it's it's kind of refreshing that, look, a lot of problems are not going to be solved. There's a lot of tough nuts to crack. Maybe, hopefully. But, you know, let's not get too excited about the inevitability of progress here. There's been a lot of decline, a lot of decay. And you can focus on religion. You can focus on whatever you want to focus on. But there are things that certainly have gotten worse just as computer chips have gotten faster. And reflecting on that and being cognizant of it and being a little bit melancholy about it is fine. And so that's the note I want to end on is when Pusey's talking about the falling off in vitality, the fact that people want something, they want to believe in something and can't. I think that's the signifier of the end of a cultural age. I think when he was talking about it, it was signifying the end of whatever you would call 1900 to 1950 or 1955 or 1960. And whatever was starting up in the 50s and blew up in the 60s and 70s and has carried on in a lot of ways to this day might itself be running out of steam. I'm not predicting what will come next. I'm not even given to give you an exact end date for the current social movement. But I will just say that these things don't last forever. And the feeling that I immediately related to in this PUC speech is the fact that you have people who desire conviction, desire things that they want to fully believe in and can no longer support. And for PUC, you know, it's a more complicated question of belief in the church. For us, probably it's not even as complicated. It's simply the obvious problem of when everybody's on the fringe, there's no fringe. When the CEOs of most of the most powerful companies in the world are on your social side, and your social side is supposed to be transformative, it's going to be hard to be transformative. When the establishment and the radicals make an alliance, there's no more radicals. You just have the establishment. And that's where we are. That's what this feels like. I don't know what comes next. And I'm not going to make the turn at the end of this that you would expect of a graduation speech, which is our generation is going to go out and meet the challenges and whatever this new social era, age is going to be, we'll meet it, we'll rise it up. It's going to be the best, most equal, most free thing you've ever seen. I don't know. I don't know. I'm actually skeptical. I think we are going to witness the continued decay, the continued incoherence of the social movement that started out as a genuine thirst for equality and freedom. And what comes after is an open question. 